0: now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Rosemary Thornton, an author of nine books who has been featured on everything from PBS History Detectives to BBC Radio. And today we'll discuss her near-death experience. Rosemary, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome.
1: Glad to be here.
0: If you don't mind, let's just start on the day that your NDE happened and go from there.
1: Okay. Well, my NDE happened September 5th, 2018. It was subsequent to a cervical biopsy, which was supposed to be a very minor procedure. But somebody made a boo-boo. And uh, when I was uh, in the recovery room, you know, they shake you. They need a bed, need a bed. So they want you out of the recovery room. And I got off the gurney and went into the bathroom. And I came back and reported to the RN that something had gone terribly wrong. And I told her I was bleeding profusely. And she was very dismissive and said, oh, once you get home, you're going to be fine. <laughs> well, two more times over a period of, I guess, maybe 20 minutes, I told her again that something was wrong. And I was bleeding profusely. And I was 59 years old at this point. I, I wasn't some, you know, goofy kid. I have owned this particular body for 59 years and pretty familiar with how things work. So I was sent home, and once at home, I realized uh, I was still bleeding an awful lot, and you can't just keep losing blood in that quantity for very long before things happen. And I had a beautiful home with wall-to-wall white carpet, so I was very concerned about that carpet. So I uh, stepped into my walk-in shower, and I literally just watched the blood pouring down the center drain of my walk-in shower. And I knew that it wouldn't be long before i passed on and the the very brief backstory i'll try to tell this as briefly as possible but two and a half years prior my husband had come home for lunch one day he was a brilliant man an interesting guy and also a, an accomplished attorney he came home for lunch one day in april 2016 and put a gun in his mouth and ended his life and i had been devastated beyond words by that for so many different reasons I had not seen it coming. I had not expected it on any level. There were no signs. There was nothing that could have prepared me for that day. And I am a writer. I'm an artist and very sensitive. And I lost my mind. I had a psychotic break. I ended up living in my car briefly. I became addicted to um, benzodiazepines, such as Ativan and Valium. And I started abusing alcohol. So I was in a pretty bad downward spiral. And... Uh, until you've lost somebody to suicide, it's hard to appreciate how that devastates you. You lose everything. I mean, I ended up, the bank foreclosed on the house and I lost uh, pretty much everything a person can lose. Of course, my friends. You know, here I was, this writer. My husband's an attorney. Our friends, many, not all, but many friends scattered to the winds like a down pillow on a windy day. They simply disappeared. And when you're a, when you are when you have a severe trauma in your life, you scare people. You scare them because they they want to make sure whatever happened to you never happens to them. So people make put some distance between you and them. And a lot of people, a handful of people who had been on the periphery of my life stepped into the fray. They saw that I was circling the drain, and they stepped in to help. So I lived with different people. And then after a few months, somebody came to live with me because I was no longer able to take care of myself. And I lost a tremendous amount of weight. Uh So very hard times. And, you know, part of the the backstory is every night I prayed three prayers. I asked God to either heal me or let me die. Secondly, I asked that when I die, there be no life review. I had had recurring nightmares where I had come into my, where I had come into the presence of my husband just as he put that gun in his mouth. And this nightmare went on for months and months. And it was like I witnessed his suicide every night for months and months and months. It was excruciatingly difficult. So I asked God, when I go, I know it won't be long. Spare me the life review. I don't need to see this again. And then my other prayer was um, I couldn't handle any more tough decisions. I had, as a consequence of his actions, there were so many vexing financial and legal decisions and emotional decisions had to be made. So that was my three prayers. Heal me or let me go. Uh, No life review, and I can't manage any more decisions. You know, interestingly, a financial advisor took me aside at one point And she said, where do you see yourself in two years? And this was shortly after my husband's suicide. And I said, oh, in two years, I'll be dead. And she chastised me. She said, that's no way to think. But it was a very honest answer. I knew people can't survive this this level of trauma and upset. And my friends were very worried. The the friends who stayed close were extremely worried. I mean, I've always been extremely sensitive. And, you know, another little quickie aside to this. Uh, I had throughout my life been fascinated by NDEs and I had read starting with Raymond Moody's book, Life After Life, which I think came out in 72 or three, early seventies. had read that so many times. I almost memorized it, you know, Daniel Brinkley and, uh, gosh, I can't even think of them all now, but I had read pretty much every book I could get my hands on repeatedly. So I was really drawn to those stories. So back to September 5th, 2018, I, uh, I'm standing in that shower that white walk-in shower watching my blood just drain down my leg right into the sh- the shower drain again don't want to make a mess for the house my children will inherit <laughs> and i remember thinking this might be an answer to my prayer i've been asking god to heal me or let me go maybe this is my way out i don't have to do anything and i had struggled mightily with suicidal ideations i had a plan i had a place i had i had everything i needed to fulfill that and I knew enough to keep my mouth shut. I was seeing a therapist at this time, and when the therapist said, uh, "Do I have to worry about you killing yourself?" I'd say, "Oh gosh, no, I, no, I wouldn't do to my, I wouldn't do to others what my husband did to me." That was a lie. I knew if I let anybody know any part or parcel what I was thinking, they would intervene. I didn't want that. I Just wanted to be dead. So leaning against that uh, that shower wall, I thought, "This is God's mercy. This is God's grace. All I have to do." is slip down and sit on the floor of my shower, and this will be over soon. And everyone will say, wow, what a pity, surgical mistake, and now she's gone. It wouldn't have been suicide. It would have spared my children uh, all this. So I'm standing in the shower. I knew if I slid down that wall that I wouldn't be able to get back up. I was already getting a little woozy. So two friends had driven me home from the hospital that day from that biopsy, and they were out in the living room, and I thought – It's really fair for them to come into the shower and find me splayed on the floor, naked, bled to death. What a horrible thing for them, but an absolutely ghastly sight for them to see. So it was really hard to do this, but I pushed myself off that shower wall and stepped out of the shower and wrapped myself with some towels and went into the living room and said, call 911, I'm dying. And they did. You know how you expect people to say, oh, you're gonna be fine. Well, they called 911, was taken by ambulance to a little ER in my town there. And I was actually living in Virginia at the time. And uh, that little ER made some more mistakes. Well, one of the biggest ones, uh, they didn't take it seriously. I don't think they understood how much blood I was losing. And I had already lost who knows how much, but a tremendous amount. I mean, there's blood everywhere. It's amazing how how significant the quantity seems when it's coming out of you and all over the floor and everything else. Uh, They made some mistakes, and the biggest one was giving me a big, whopping uh, dose of Dilaudid, which is actually contraindicated for um, plunging blood pressure. In other words, it reduces your blood pressure even more. So that's uh, who knows what, what actually sent me to my report. Well, the last thing I remember was watching that nurse inject the Dilaudid into an IV they had started in my arm. And um, just moments before, it, so it was a very young doctor attending to me at this little, and, and it was an emergency room that was not connected to a hospital. It was kind of a, a new new building, new idea. It's kind of, I guess, like an elevated urgent care center. But there was an, uh, the doctor was at my feet for a bit, and then the RN was to my left holding my hand. And I, at this point, I was pretty upset. It was all pretty anxiety provoking. And I, uh, looked in that nurse's eyes, and I said, promise me you're not going to let me die. And she said, oh, honey, we have many solutions for this. We're not going to let you die. Well, next came the dilated, and that was the last thing I remember. And then the next thing I know, I felt like I was um, awakened from a deep, dark, dreamless state. And I was awakened catapulting out of my body. And I mean catapulting. It was very, very dramatic. And I, I know this sounds out there, and this may not be the typical NDE, but it was as though there was a sinewy silver cord from the crown of my head to the heel of my feet and that somebody had pulled back on it like an archer's bow. And with the pop of that bow against my back, my soul went flying out of my body, and I mean flying. And it was right on the cusp of painful or jarring not painful but jarring but it wasn't it was fun It was great and I heard a sound and Mary Neal's book Mary C. Neal wrote a book oh the title eludes me but she wrote a book about her own NDE and she said the sound that she heard when her soul separated from her body was the sound that a stone makes when it's dropped into the water and that I heard that sound and I hadn't read I had not read Mary Neal's book at that point uh and I knew instantly what had happened and one of my my very first thoughts, and now I'm floating further and further away from my body, and I did not see. I, I was in this perfect blackness, and I mean pitch black blackness, and yet it was like velvet. It was comfortable and comforting, and it was the most perfect piece I have ever experienced. And I knew I there was not, oh, what's going on? I knew exactly what had happened. And one of my first thoughts was, won't they be surprised how this turned out? You know, like the hypochondriac's tombstone that says, I told you I was sick. <laughs> so that was one of my thoughts is – This is going to be a surprise to everybody. And then my next thought was, oh, my, one of my other thoughts was, my heart has stopped. I mean, I said it out loud. I thought, how do I know my heart has stopped? I "I don't know how I know, but I know that's right. And then my next thought was, I'm dying. And then I thought, no, actually, you're not dying. You're dead. Because as a lifelong writer and editor, the most important thing when you're going on to your reward is to correct your tense. So, and that, funny little comment made me laugh out loud I said it out loud I heard myself speak and I thought this is great this is great so I'm dying I'm dead I don't have any breath sounds I don't think I have vocal cords but I can hear myself speak I still have my goofball sense of humor I still have my funny little giggle everything I really am has gone with me everything I am has made this transition every single thing down to my goofball borderline moribund sense of humor is still with me and another thought i had was i thought about the bible verse it's i believe it's corinthians the peace that passeth all understanding and i thought this is that peace this is a peace that i could never define describe or explain to somebody else this is perfect peace and throughout my life i have suffered from profound anxiety Uh, like so many sensitive souls things hit me too hard i had a um, I had a hard time growing up, you know, and a lot of, a lot of rough things happened. So I'd often suffered from profound anxieties and fears and all the rest of it. And in this experience, I thought to myself, I have always wondered what I would look like with no anxiety, no fear, no worries, no woes. And this is it. And this is great. And it was as though, I mean, I have a background in architecture and it was as though somebody had taken a 60 amp service and cranked it up to a hundred thousand amps. It was like, all of my intellect came online. All of it was there and, and firing beautifully. And I thought, I mean, all my life I would thought of myself as something of a smart cookie. But now I realize I've been kind of a dullard and adult by comparison to who I was now. And it was just so magnificent. As I know many people say, there simply aren't words to describe it. And very early in this experience, I felt I realized that I was being accompanied or I had been accompanied by a very large being to my left, much taller than me, and um, slightly behind me. So I turned my head to the left to see who's there, even though I'm still in this pitch blackness, and I couldn't see. But I said, with a lilt in my voice, I said, and who are you? And the spiritual being said, you, Rosemary, you are the image and likeness. I'm the original. And it was, uh, we use the word awesome quite a bit, but it was an awe-inspiring moment in every sense of the word, because it wasn't just words. It really did come with an infusion of understanding. I mean, that's Genesis 1, 26, you know, that we're made in the image and likeness of God. And I I had always been a student of the Bible, but I I didn't begin to comprehend what I understood now that there was an original and I was the image and likeness. So this experience just went on and on and on. You know, if you told me, I, you know, one of my favorite quotes, Einstein said to those of us who are committed physicists, the past, present, and future are only illusion, however persistent. We see time in a very linear construct. But if you told me that I had been dead for two days, I would have believed it. In fact, I was gone a little more than 10 minutes, maybe 20. It's, it's debatable, but certainly more than 10 minutes. Um, and this just went on and on and one of the experiences that helped me understand myself a whole bunch was i had an awareness that i had been in this blackness before floating just as i was now and by an awareness i mean in this experience this consciousness i had i had been through this before and i thought what what in the world and i asked and now this this massive being was not there but i had a like an angel or a spiritual being with me and i said i've been here before and the angel said remember that story your mom told you that you had been uh, given up for dead as a newborn infant. She said, you weren't almost dead. <laughs> she said, we sent you back then. And I thought that explains so many things in my life. One, my hunger for reading NDEs, but also the fact that all my life I've heard the angels. I've heard things other people don't hear, saw things other people didn't see. It had been a very different, uh, difficult life. And I think that's part of what made life harder, was having these experiences And kind of being talked out of them a lot. So I I remember saying, you know, that would have been good to know back there. You know, in this earthly realm, that would have been good information to have. But we're past all that now. And I remember thinking, I'm out. I'm clear. I did not do this to myself. And even in this experience that was so holy and beautiful and filled with powerful, good feelings, I remembered my husband's suicide. And, you know, I mentioned that I had basically, well, I had died from a cervical biopsy. Prior to my death, I had been diagnosed by two doctors with cervical cancer stage two. So it had already spread beyond the original site to um, other flesh. And in fact, the oncologist, I was referred to a gynecological oncologist after the first doctor discovered it. And he did a visual exam, physical exam, and said it had advanced to a point that it had distorted the flesh. So in other words, upon physical examination, you could see it. So the cervical biopsy was to determine how far and where all this had gone. So I I also remembered that I was supposed to start chemotherapy and daily radiation. I was going to be on once a week chemo and daily radiation for six weeks. And I had been told there was a 70% chance of cure with one six-week regimen. And I remember thinking, I'm out of that. I do not have to have chemo. I'm out. I'm clear. I thought about my husband's suicide. I thought about my own desire to end my life. And I thought, this is grace. This is nothing but God's grace that I am out. And I remember thinking very specifically, I felt like I had gotten out early for good behavior. It was over, and it was all behind me, and I had absolutely no intention of going back. In fact, one of my thoughts while I was floating further and further away from my body, I remember thinking, this is great. This is fun. Floating is fun, and I remember that because I'm a writer. I have a pretty good vocabulary. I've spent a lifetime as a newspaper reporter, a writer, an editor, written nine books, and here I am saying, I like floating. Floating is fun. This is great. (laughs) If I was coming back, I would have used much more prosaic language so I could quote myself. So I had no intention of coming back whatsoever. And then the experience, as I said, it went on and on and on. And I talked with angels and I thought about the other Bible verse I thought about was in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And I thought when they answered questions in this realm, the answers came with a knowing. It's like they infuse knowledge into every cell of your being. And I thought, that's what the power of the word is. That's what the Bible's talking about, is God's words, the logos, so powerful. And there were so many layers to this. And it was, um, say it was life-changing, doesn't begin to describe it. My predominant feeling was gratitude. My life had felt so hard. And with my husband's suicide, I had become a social pariah. I had become a leper, a modern leper. Nobody wanted to be near me. Now it was all over got clean slate time and I was going to be, I was out of it. And I just, I just can't express how much gratitude I felt in my whole life or for decades. I always kept a daily, the daily gratitude list. And I guess that's the result is even when you're dying or you're dead, all you can think about is how grateful you are. And through this experience, I heard somebody screaming my name, but I never turned around. It was like, I was moving quickly forward and they were some distance behind me and kept getting further and further away. But I kept hearing somebody scream in a very agitated voice, Rosemary, Rosemary, Rosemary. And I, you know, when you hear somebody call your name, you tend to turn around just to see who's calling what's going on. And I had no, no desire to do that whatsoever. And, and I realized now it's because I wasn't Rosemary in this form. You know, the word personality comes from the Latin word for mask. And that was, that was my earth self. That wasn't my new self. So at some point, and I don't remember the transition, unfortunately, but at some point I have no memory of the transition. I was in a white room and I was on my feet now. I was no longer floating, but I was in a perfect big white room with a white ceiling, white floors, white walls, and no light fixture. The room was illuminated from within. And it was the most perfect white. It was that white that's so white. It might have a tiny bit of blue in it, you know, pearlescent iridescent, white, perfect white. And I wish I'd looked at my feet. I really do. But I remember thinking I see a door on the other side of this room and I guess, I don't know, 20 feet, 25 feet, some distance, like a a spacious room. And I remember thinking, I, I know what that door is. That door is the boundary, the border, the demarcation. That door is where I cross over and I'm done. And I remember thinking, I don't know if I have feet or legs or what, but I know that that I can move with intention. And so I thought about how much I wanted to be at that door, and I started perambulating toward that door. I couldn't wait to get to the door. Words can't describe how much I was so excited about getting to that door. So I moved toward the door, and in this room all around me was a very thick white mist, almost like a fog. And it wasn't just falling around me, it was swirling around me like a dance. And I tried to focus on an individual droplet. And I know that sounds nuts, but I felt like I ought to be able to see one of these droplets. And one of the angelic beings with me said, your eyes have not acclimated to this new experience yet. So you can't see what you're looking at. But they said, each little droplet is a particle of light and you're being washed in light. And some people die with a disease process so imposed on consciousness or thought that they think it's part of their identity. Or maybe they think mental illness is part of who they are. In my case, this profound sadness over my husband's suicide. and What a mess my life had become. So I was told that Everyone who goes to heaven gets cleansed. This is lifted off of them, whether it's sin or sickness or darkness or sadness or whatever. And that's what this light wash was about. And one of the thoughts that I had was it was like I was one billionth of a drop of ocean water being returned to the ocean. I was being returned to my source. And I was loved. I was respected. I was cherished. I was liked. Just as I was. You know, I didn't have to do better to be like when I was a kid, my father would tell me uh, if I did something, he would like me. And then when I was 14, he left and never wanted any contact with me again. And I always thought, you know, I never I never did enough. I was never good enough for him. What a shame. And so I figured that's what God was like. You know, that we earn our way into God's favor by good works, by good deeds. If we do enough, if we accomplish enough, if we're hard workers, if we're kind enough, if we're smart enough, if we're something enough, maybe God will like us. And I guess one of the top 20 biggest takeaways from this experience is God likes us as is, where is. We don't have to do stuff to make God like us. We don't have to do stuff to be welcomed by the divine, that we are loved as we are. And that was massive. So... One of the things, um, I moved toward the door as quickly as I could because there was no doubt, 100% certain I wanted to go. I had no thought of coming back. I mean, what was I coming back to? A diseased body, a messy life, so many problems, so much sadness. So I had terrible PTSD. I couldn't even go out in public without somebody with me because bad things happened. So I didn't want to go back. And uh, I saw that door. I got close to the door, and I put my right hand up, to move through the door to open it so I could go through it. And I was pretty interested by the fact that I was right-handed on earth and right-handed in heaven. Still pretty intrigued by the fact that I had appendages. I had some human-esque form. And as I put my right hand up, uh, I paused and I said, is this the divine will for my life? And I didn't even get past, is this the maybe divine? And the answer was no, it's not. But Whatever you decide, you go with all of God's love and mercy and grace and blessings and care. And I thought, Oh, and the other comment was there, there isn't a wrong decision. And I thought, okay, I'll take that deal. So I went to move through that door and, or open the door. And I had a vision, very powerful vision of that RN who stood by my side when I was on that gurney and promised me I wouldn't die. But this time, she was in a hospital supply room, sitting on a metal stool, bent over with her head in her hands, sobbing uncontrollably. This was a vision, a very powerful vision. And through tears, she said, I promised that woman I wasn't going to lose her. Or I promised that woman I wasn't going to let her die, and I lost her. And she was crying. And I saw this vision, and I thought, you know, she's an RN. She looked to be about my age. I'll bet you she'll get over this. You know, I got to go. I can't go back to this disease, this trauma, this being a leper. And then the vision changed and, uh, vision didn't change, but my, how it hit me did, I felt her pain. I felt her grief and her sadness at her and her despair. It was like I was in her soul for a minute and I felt all her sadness and I realized I, I recognized that much grief, that much pain. And I thought, I can't do that to anybody. If I have the ability to stop somebody from suffering that much, I have to go back. And it was a very hard decision. It still is. <laughs> I've told this story, I don't know, 200 times. And it's still, a, it was a hard decision. So I was told, if I agreed to go back, that I would be healed. I would be healed of the sadness and the PTSD and the being a societal leper and uh, the disease. I'd be whole if I went back because I'd been through the White Room. And so... I very hesitantly put my right hand down by my side and realized I had to go back. And I, and when my right hand went down to my side, it was not a millisecond. And I was back in that body. There was no whoosh. There was no noise. There was no sound. I was just back on that gurney in that little ER in a new room. I got a new room during my time of being dead. <laughs> and everybody was in that tiny little room. They had called everybody I learned from my friend who had accompanied me to the hospital. They had called everybody, even the receptionist, back to that little room to resuscitate me. And there was a lot of activity going on. And, you know, when I came back in that room, I came back to that body, this body. I looked up and to my left, in the upper left-hand corner of the room, I saw one of the angels. And I said, mentally, I said, that was kind of a sneaky Pete maneuver, you know, telling me I, I, I had to spare this nurse the suffering. And one thing about angels that I learned is they don't always answer. And the angel just kind of looked at me and said, hi, here you are. Here we are. You're back. And I said, come on, Robert's Rules of Order. We, didn't, we had a first, but we didn't have a second. We didn't have any discussion. I just came back. And I was thrown into an ambulance pretty darn fast. They wanted me out of there very quickly. And I think because they were very frightened, I would die again. I mean, I, I don't know the details. I do know. It's pretty interesting. When I came back uh, and they let my friend back to see me, my friend said that my lips were uh, blue and under my eyes were blue. And he said, you've heard the expression white as a sheet. He said, but I didn't understand it till I saw you on the <laughs> screen. He said, you looked, he said, you looked worse than a corpse. He said, I've never seen even a corpse look that bad with in terms of, you know, coloring. So I was thrown to an ambulance and in the ambulance, the angel kept me company. And I actually had to ask my friend later. I said, was there anybody in that ambulance of human form? And my friend said, yes, one guy was driving and one guy was back there attending to you. And I said, well, the angel took up an awful lot of space in the back of that ambulance. And they had an oxygen mask on me at this point covering my nose and mouth, and that angel kept telling me funny stories and little, I don't know, she just kept quipping funny little things at me. And I would laugh so hard that I would reach up and I would take that oxygen mask off just for a second so I could laugh properly. And then I guess, I guess it was the attendant, but he would snap it back on and he'd say, stop doing that. <laughs> so I was taken to a trauma center, which is where I should have been taken to begin with. And I was admitted and I was there for four days. And, you know, the first morning, so this was a Wednesday night that I passed on Thursday morning. I got the real doctor. I got the doctor that's been a doctor for a while that actually, you know, doesn't have play school on his stethoscope, you know, and, uh, the real doctor sat down and he said, um, your heart stopped. And I said, I, you got to have the wrong person, you know, I, I biographed or actually said you had a heart attack. I said, no, 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 not me. I'm very healthy. He said, well, no, what happened was, uh, you went into V-fib, which is where your heart just quivers, and then your heart stopped. And he said, "There's uh, your enzymes are elevated this morning, which tells us there's some damage to your heart. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. The angel said if I agreed to come back, it'd be fine, 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 fine. <laughs> and they did uh, lots of tests, and they did an echocardiogram, and they had the, the little thingies on my chest, the little uh, terminals or diodes, or whatever they're called. They did a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of tests on me and my heart and other organs, too. Apparently, when you bleed out, that's pretty severe. And all the tests came back that I was very healthy and my heart was fine. And when he would come in, you know, the next day or two to sit with me, he'd say, you're very lucky. Everything is fine. he said, your heart, your heart muscle shows no damage whatsoever. And I was there for four days and uh, the angel's. I had a couple friends, actually, I guess three friends would come in the hospital, to sit with me. Because when, when you're in a compromised state in the hospital, you need somebody else in there making sure the right decisions are being made and they got the right patient and things like that. And every now and then they'd have to step out and um, go get a bite to eat or something. And uh, when they did that, the angels would come and sing to me. And it was very profound. They would sing me the most beautiful songs one could ever imagine. And when they sang, they were made of light, and when they sang, they became even more sparkly and even brighter. And I would cry, and I told them, "The music is so beautiful. I can't uh, it's almost like too much." I said, "But don't stop." <laughs> mm-hmm. And I told them, I said, "I'm real good at houses. I'm real good at architecture. I'm not so good at remembering melody and lyrics." And they said, "This is not for you to remember. This is for your healing. This is for your joy and this is for your peace." And they also said, "This is a thank you for coming back. We know how hard it is to see heaven and then come back to earth." And one of the things I was told, I was told a lot of stuff, but one of the things the angels told me was that all the mess left by my husband's suicide, and there was a lot of mess. I found out after his death that he had not been he had not honored the marital covenants. I found out a lot of things that were very hard to hear. I was told that all of that mess had been encapsulated and that it was a thing. There was a lot of muck and a lot of filth and a lot of ugliness, but it couldn't hurt me anymore. It had been sealed up tight. And as an architectural historian, that's a really fascinating term that they used, that it had been encapsulated, because that's what you do with uh, contaminants, So, I like you It's often better to encapsulate rather than try to remove them, because in the removal of contaminants, you can stir up more stuff. So, yeah, that's what they told me. All that had been encapsulated. So I was discharged from the hospital on day four, and I went home. And there were a lot of things that happened at home. But one of the things was I opened my Bible uh, to Psalm 23. It just fell open. And it was like one verse was actually highlighted, and it said, He restoreth my soul. And I read that, and I wept for some time because I realized that was the real healing. My soul had been restored. And even while I was still in the hospital, I had had, you know, I was 59 years old. I'd been in radio for a time. I had had some high-frequency hearing loss. And one of the things I noticed upon my return was I could hear people whispering down the corridors of the hospital. I could hear things I hadn't heard in an awfully long time. I'd had arthritis in my wrist, and that was gone. I had a busted knee that happened when I was moving from one house to another house to another house. My busted knee wasn't hurting anymore. And there were so many things that were healed. And then it took some time, but ultimately it was discovered that um, – actually, it took another visit to another oncologist. I went back to that first oncologist and told him that I'd been healed in heaven, and that didn't go well. Mm. You can imagine what he said to that. I had to find another oncologist because I did want to affirm that this was over, that this was gone. And the oncologist scheduled a sur- surgery for two months away. They wanted to give me time to heal from all this. And um, I kept telling her I was healed in heaven, but I just want to be sure. And she did multiple biopsies from multiple places, lots of flesh, and had multiple people from multiple labs and even while I was being operated on. And uh, she told me, she said, your flesh is so pink and pretty and perfect, I can't believe you ever had cancer. So not only was it gone, it was completely gone. And at two weeks out, I had some blood work done and I had had a friend praying for me throughout this time. And I had told him it was the doctor's expectation. It would be two to three months before I was back on my feet and feeling strong and feeling back to normal again, because that's how long it takes for your body to regenerate all the red and white blood cells. And my friend who'd been praying for me said, Oh, we'll see about that. And so at day four, 15, I think, I had all this blood work done. And when the doctor looked at it, she said, I see there's a mistake on your blood work. And I said, what is it? And she said, all your numbers are literally textbook perfect down to the decimal. And I said, well, that's not a mistake. I'm riding my bike again, slowly. I'm walking again. The breathlessness is gone. I feel good again. So that was um, that was really my first evidence that this was really over. Uh, and after I came back from this, I made a decision to sell off everything I own, which I did. I had a beautiful house and a beautiful place. I started selling off all my furniture. I sold lamps. I sold appliances. I sold window dressings. I sold antiques. I donated all my research materials to a local college library. And then I sold my car. It was a beautiful red car that I had actually waited two months to get. Sold the car. Bought a slightly used Prius. And then I sold my home, listed it, and sold it in two hours. Uh, or I should say I got a contract and then, and this was back before all the real estate excitement started. This was in February, 2019, 2019. And, uh, I packed my meager belongings to the back of that Prius and drove a thousand miles West to start a new life in the Midwest.
0: Well, you've had an amazing journey and I really appreciate you sharing that with us.
1: You're very welcome. It was pretty dramatic.
0: (laughs) I mean, I would go, I would take it as far as miraculous.
1: Yes. Yes. And that's been three, three plus years ago now, three years and four months or so. And it did change the way I see the world. I, I was living in a fairly busy metropolitan area and I wanted to be in a place where you can see the cornfields and see the soybean fields and see the sunset over these massive fields. I wanted, I craved beauty with everything that is within me. I craved it intensely. So, uh, I actually had lunch, um, with a neuroscientist that drove from a couple states away to meet me. And she said, you know, everything in your story, the thing that is most interesting to me is that you changed everything about your life pretty much in the blink of an eye. And she said, human beings aren't wired that way. It takes them a lot of time to make effective change. And she said, you changed every single thing about your life. And before this, people had told me I needed to move and start a new life. And I said, uh, I'm not, I'm too old for that. I don't have the energy, which was true. But after this, I couldn't wait to sell things. And in fact, um, one of the things I did, because I sold off things that had been in my family, you know, things that belonged to my mom. My mom has been dead many years. And I would stand over the item, the couch, the chair, the table. And I would say, you know, God, this, this piece of furniture has been such a blessing to me. Please send me someone who will be equally blessed, who will be so glad to find it, to have it, to feel it's just to feel the good energy around this, the love and the peace that surrounds this little item. And invariably, those people showed up. And I mean, I listed this stuff on a online marketplace, but it sold very, very quickly and everything went very harmoniously. And I was able to get out of town pretty quickly and start my new life.
0: Were you told during your experience, or did you discover afterward that you had a new mission or a new purpose in life?
1: Oh, that's a very interesting question. I guess one of the things that happened, I didn't mention this, but when I came back from this, I felt like I was 95% in heaven and 5% in this world. You know, people say they still feel like they're 50% there, 50% here. Not me, I felt like I was mostly in that world. In fact, that first night when I was lying in the hospital bed after I had, you know, been transported to a real hospital, I realized I felt wrong inside that in my torso area, I still felt like things were very wrong. And I asked the angels, I said, am I going to die? Am I going back? And they said, nope, we're making some adjustments. Things are a little off right now, but you're not going back. And they said, you have 20 years. And I was like, 20 years, please. No, 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 no. We didn't talk about this before. 20 years. But one of the things that happened, I mean, I really literally had the ear of the angels. And I asked them, I had a million questions about my husband. I had tormented myself constantly with ruminations such as, I loved him so much. How could he do this? Where is he now? What happened to him? I loved him so much. How could he do this? Where is he now? I loved him. The angels said to stop saying, I loved him so much. And they said, replace it with, I loved. They said that when we love, it's like a river of light pours through us and purifies us and elevates us, inspires us and heals us. And they say, you don't have to have a manifestation of your love to love. So I thought, ooh, that's a point. And then when I asked, well, where is he now? What's happening to him? They said, none of your business. And I said, What? (laughs) That's rather brusque for somebody who keeps company with the most high God. And they said, we are to work out our own salvation. It was never your job to work out his salvation. And the the beauty part of all this, I mean, I got a lot of uh, things answered. The beauty part of it was it took the burden, the guilt, and the responsibility off my shoulders. I was killing myself with guilt, literally killing myself with guilt. And it it unshackled me from that, from his nightmare. And in time, I came to realize that it was almost like I had been invited to a stage play to watch the horror of his suicide. And I realized I now had the right to leave that auditorium, to stop watching that play over and over and over again, but to simply walk away and say, I'm not going to watch this anymore. I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to ruminate. I'm not going to worry. And then I realized in time... That even he had probably experienced wherever he is some liberation from that. And it really was like I had been unshackled from the nightmare, and I was free to leave it behind. And that's why it's so good I moved away. There were a lot of memories. He was quite the bon vivant. We traveled a lot, we went we went out to eat all the time. I mean we had we had a fun life. and the city I was living in was nothing but memories of all the places we'd gone and the things we'd seen. and getting away from that was very therapeutic, very salutary for me. So it was very definitely the right thing to do. But yes, I felt like a lot of my questions were answered. But the most important thing, I was unshackled from the horror of his act. And that brought me so much peace. And I still have days when I cry. I miss him. I wish he hadn't done this. I wish he'd made better choices in his life. Um, but I, it's not the grief that destroys me anymore, it's a sadness. It's not a soul wrenching grief and it's a huge difference. And I know you probably have some listeners who have had somebody very close to them in their own life. And again, it's an agony and a pain that only person who's been through this can truly understand. So to be set free from that was huge. And, you know, people talk about the healing of the cancer and I don't want to diminish that in any way, but the healing of my soul, the healing of my emotional state was so much bigger and it's back to your question of having a mission or a purpose, I kind of feel like my mission and my purpose is one to share this story, and two to write a book. I'm not a fan of writing; writing comes hard to me. We were talking earlier uh, that for some people writing seems easier. It's very hard for me, and writing this book, on one hand, has been easy. On the other, on the other hand, I'm trying to make it just so. I, I don't want it to be. I want it to be simple and beautiful. I want it to be an accurate reflection of what happened. So I guess my mission and my purpose is to share this story with as many people as possible. That one, heaven is real. You know, there's hardly anybody my age, I'm 62 now, has not buried somebody they love dearly. We want to know where are they? What happens? I was talking with a friend of mine who's also had a very profound near-death experience. By the way, I call it a temporary death experience. Mm -hmm. I was not near death. Mm -hmm. I was good and dead. And we've talked about the fact that these days when we see a funeral procession or we go to a funeral and see the coffin up front, mainly we just think, you lucky SOB. Mm -hmm. I know where you are, and one day I'll be there. It is hard not to feel envious of people who have passed because you know where they're going, and you know the peace. The peace, the peace, the peace, the peace, the peace. The peace is just unbelievable. its I guess it's our reward for, for doing this earth thing. But dying, if I could sum it up in a couple sentences, I would say it's most like waking up from a really intense dream. And I don't want to diminish anyone's suffering, but it's kind of like a realization that it was like a nightmare in some ways, and you're awake from it. And coming back from this experience, it felt a lot like a beloved parent shaking you awake from a nightmare and saying, it's over, I'm here, you don't have to live through that anymore anymore. And that was very interesting. I had never allowed myself to think of God as father because father seems so cruel. So to think of God as a father that liked me was so radical. I'm still sinking in, frankly. But yes, this whole thing was very much like being awakened from a very bad dream. And I guess if I had one mission, it would be people who are suffering from this level of trauma. There, there is a way, you know, that you can be, you can be awakened from this horror. And I don't, you know, I'm not just happy, happy, joy, joy bouncing around all the time. I heard a quote from some, I think it was a Japanese philosopher, or sage, who said after a terrible trauma, he said, I realize I'm not going to have happy days anymore, but I can have happy moments within the days. And that sums up my experience. You know, because also the other thing that happens is I get a lot of emails from people who lost someone to suicide. A lot of people reach out to me which is quite an honor it's a very deep honor just because they think that, that I can understand their suffering so um, earth is a hard place to be and the more sensitive you are the harder it is so I guess my mission if there is one is to write a book and spread the, the news that what comes next is uh, fantastic and these people go around saying that when you're dead it's lights out at the end I'm like whatever one day you'll see how wrong you are because I wasn't, um, the, the thing I guess that makes my stories, I hope, so believable is when I died, I had stage two cancer. When I came back, it was so gone. Not a remnant, not a cell. And that was one of the words the doctor, the oncologist used. Not one cell found in all the fleshy examples, uh, samples that she took. And that comment that your flesh is so pink and pretty and perfect, I don't think you ever had cancer. And, you know, what actually an interesting side, what sent me to the doctor in the first place was I had a lot of very frightening symptoms, including, uh, you know, bleeding and fevers and lots of, you know, swollen nodes and all kinds of stuff was happening. And after I came back, it was all gone. <laughs> so I have no doubt. But, yes, the people who think this is it were just um, some cell in a Petri dish. And when it's over, it's over. Oh, man, I wish I could just give them a shake and say, oh, there's so much more coming.
0: Can you be a little more descriptive of what the angels look like? And also, while I'm asking you, can you give us any more of the conversations you had with them?
1: Yeah, uh, what they looked like. They were human-esque in form, but tall. Like you'd say they had a head, shoulders, torso, legs. But they were clothed in this white light, and it was sparkly. Have you ever seen the, um, oh, there's a word for it, but it's the, uh, when a welder is welding two pieces of metal, those yellow sparkles that fall down from the weld job, it was like those sparkles fell down from them, but they were very bright and colorful and beautiful. And, And as they sang, the songs they sang were to the glory of God. And as they sang, they got even more sparkly. And I, I so wish I could remember the songs, but the songs were all about the glory of God. And, you know, and I thought about this and what they said, you know, this isn't for you to remember. This is for your peace, your joy, and your healing. And this is a thank you for coming back from heaven. And I thought about that. I mean, was I healed in heaven or was I healed as the angels sang to me? And I don't know. And I guess it doesn't really matter. But so they they were human-esque in form and sparkly. And, you know, an interesting aside And this is some people's favorite story. So I was on my feet pretty soon after this thing happened. I mean, I was, well, I was walking around before I left the hospital. Well, I was back in church for Wednesday night service, probably, I don't know, 10 days after this happened, because I was feeling pretty good. (laughs) So I was in church and it was the prelude. I was a Wednesday evening service and it was a prelude. The pianist had sat down to start the music, you know, the, five minutes before the service begins they play play some music and it was a baby grand and the top was up you know they had the kickstand the top was propped up and when she hit those chords of music to start the prelude i saw these brilliant sparkles of light burst out of the the piano burst out of you know where the strings are and they were colorful all the colors of the rainbow very beautiful very bright very intense and these sparkles of light burst out together uh, uh, a massive swath of them and they went up to the ceiling and they went up to the ceiling and they hit the ceiling of the church and they spread out all over the church and after they hit this after they spread out a little bit they then dropped these sparkles dropped on everybody in the pews and dropped around their head and their shoulders and in their lap and again it was like the welder's uh I know there's a word for it, the thing the welders produced, but it was that sparkly. And even after the sparklies hit people, they just kind of rolled off onto the floor. And I was so moved by this vision that I started to sob, really, really cry. And I'm like, hold it in, chick. You're in church. Don't embarrass yourself. And I'm jiggling the pew. You know, I'm sobbing so hard. I was crying so hard. Somebody from an adjoining pew came and sat beside me, put their arm over my shoulder and said, are you okay? And I Yes. Yes. But I have, I only saw it that one time. I never had that vision again, but I have never heard live music without thinking about that vision that when we, when we produce Holy sound, that's, what's really happening. We are being blessed and enriched and changed.
0: So are you saying that you're not sure if you were healed in the white light or by the angels or do you think it's by a combination of the two?
1: I guess. I guess it would be. I guess it would be the white room. I don't know. I don't really have an answer. I mean, I, I guess it's the white room because they said no matter. They said the what they said was the muck of the earth is washed away by the white room, which interestingly is contrary to my own personal religious beliefs. It's more reflective of the Catholic uh, belief system. You know, purgatory and go to the, the white And, you know, one of the first thoughts I have, so I, I, you know, after I'm back from this and they throw me on a gurney and they take me out to the ambulance outside to transport me to a hospital, I remember thinking, that was an NDE. I have spent my life reading about NDEs and I just had one and it was nothing like what I have read about. And, you know, one of the most frequently asked questions I get is, are you doing this for the money? I love that one. I love it. Because if I was doing it for the money. Uh, I would have created a story about an NDE that was more traditional. (laughs) I'm a writer. (laughs) I could come up with something great. But um, the other thing is after this happened, there were multiple medical mistakes. I mean, this was catastrophic level mistakes. And I decided not to sue anybody. One, my husband was a litigator. I know how ugly lawsuits are. And suing somebody is like declaring war on another human being. And I wanted no part of it. And I have had so many people tell me, you have really missed your golden opportunity to become filthy rich. You should have sued, and they would have settled out of court. I know that. But I didn't want to. And so yeah, the other question is, you know, did you make it up? And I was like, no, if I was going to make it up, i would have I would have done something so traditional, you know, the white light, the tunnel, and the sounds and everything. And secondly, yeah, I made a conscious decision not to sue because you know, no nobody got up that morning and said, "Let's kill off Rosemary." They did their best. People made mistakes. And you know, what happened to me? I was restored. And all my prayers were answered. Heal me or let me go? They were both answered. Spare me a life review? There was no life review. And three was no more hard choices. What was I told at that door? There isn't a wrong decision.
0: All right. I need to switch gears on you because I'm running out of time. Okay. Uh, Um. After hearing this podcast, people may want to reach out to you and ask you questions or communicate with you. Are you open to that? And if so, how can they reach you?
1: Yes. I have a website, TemporaryDeath.com. And it's just like it sounds, two words, TemporaryDeath.com. And there's a contact me form on that that they can write to. And I also have another website, Sears Sears. Homes.org. SearsHomes.org is my original architecture website. Mm -hmm. But yes, TemporaryDeath.com is probably easier to remember. And also you can Google my name, Rosemary Thornton, and I pop up.
0: You have nine books. Are any of them about your NDE?
1: Nope. They're all about architecture, but number 10 is going to be about the NDE.
0: Okay, great, because I have a lot more questions, and I'm sure the audience does well, so they can get that in the book when it comes out.
1: Yes, the title is Remembering the Light, How Dying Saved My Life, and that book is also, there's a, chapter one is at the website, so if they want to log on to that site, com and read chapter one. It's up there now.
0: Actually, it'll be perfect. So when your book comes out, I can have you back and I can revisit this NDE right before and then I'll, I can get all my questions again and we can spend the second time just asking you questions the whole time. Okay. Do you have anything that you're working on that you want us to know about besides your book?
1: <laughs> no, I do, I do quite a few of these interviews and podcasts and stuff. I just want people to be comforted. I nearly died from my husband's suicide. You know, if I could just make one quick comment, um, we talk a lot about suicide prevention. It's BS. It's just BS. And when I hear people talk about suicide prevention, all years coulda, woulda, shoulda. We need to look at the people who survive suicide, like me. People who have a loved one. We are 12 to 4, 12 to 48 times more likely to end our own life than the general population because of what we've been through. Because the person we love the most decided, hey, this is a plan. So if you want to have suicide prevention, reach out to people like me. Don't turn people like me into societal lepers. Don't push us into the darkness and say you're too weird. I don't want this to ever happen to me. We need to stay away from you.
0: All right. Before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message?
1: We're always surrounded by too many angels to count, and we just need to ask for help. Talk to them like you talk to your mom or your favorite person. I do that so often. I just say, hey, I'm not doing good today. Give me a little guidance. Give me a little joy. Give me a little push in the right direction. Please help me. And they are very much always present. It's their job.
0: Well, thank you for that message. And Rosemary, thank you so much for being our guest. I really appreciate you and I wish you the best.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.